may be seated. Take out your Bibles once again, opening to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We are in the very last book of the Bible, and as we've been saying for the last several weeks, this is the exclamation point on that long sentence that is the Bible. You know, you can, working backwards front, we can go all the way back to the very beginning and see that the the story of the Bible really is a long story of redemption that begins in Genesis 1-1, where God created the heavens and the earth. He established a temple-like place where he would come and dwell in the midst of a people that he would make for himself. He would create man and woman to know him, to love him, to serve him, created in his image to live a life completely devoted to him. As that sentence continues on, we don't get very far into the story and very long into the sentence until we come to Genesis chapter 3. And that man and that woman created in the image of God to know, love, and serve him falls in sin. They rebel against their creator. And the Lord announces curses upon them, upon the serpent. But in those curses, he also announces redemption. He announces a promise that all will not be lost. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Oh, judgment is coming, but it's not entirely the end of the story. The woman will have a child. A Messiah will come who will crush the head of the serpent, reversing what is done. And the storyline continues throughout the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, throughout the Old Testament. God reveals more and more of himself and his faithfulness to his promise in the form of covenants. Right? He establishes covenants with Abraham and and, and with Moses and and with David and, and particularly, most importantly, in the new covenant. And all along the way, as he fulfills the terms, his terms in those covenants, he's showing, I made you a promise and I'm showing you. I am faithful to my promises. And then also in that, he's also revealing more and more of who this promised Messiah from Genesis 3 is going to be through different figures like Melchizedek, who the book of Hebrews tells us is a type of Christ. He's he's symbolizing and and showing us some of what the, the coming Messiah will be like in his priesthood, in his kingship, but not only in figures, also in symbols and in ceremonies, in the sacrificial system, all of those things were designed not just to tell the story of the past, but to tell what the future Messiah is going to be like and what he's going to do. And then in this long story of redemption, the coming of the Messiah is inaugurated with the incarnation of Christ. The Messiah comes, he's born of the flesh, the God-man. He lives the life we should have lived. He dies upon the cross. He's raised from the dead three days later. Forty days later, he ascends to heaven, where now he's engaged in what we call this his session at the right hand of the Father on high. And as the story unfolds, that's not the end of the sentence. It continues on in the New Testament epistles as, as it's the body of Christ. That continues on the work of Christ of bringing together a kingdom who will rule, where Christ will rule over his people and his people will know him, love him, serve him, worship him, rejoice in him forever. And it's the book of Revelation that comes in as the exclamation point to the whole story. 
and says, though we're not there yet, here, let me just kind of pull back the veil just so you see. The God who made this promise, he keeps it. Here's the victory of Christ over all things as he establishes a new heaven, a new earth, where his people will know him, love him, serve him with pure hearts and dwell, and he will dwell with his people forever. And for the past several weeks, we've been looking at John's salutation to this letter that runs from verses 4 through 8. Particularly in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And we've taken time the last couple of weeks to say, now this is more than just a polite opening to a letter. I'm the author, grace and peace. Let me just kind of get a few pleasantries out of the way. No, this is a gateway into the book of Revelation. John is setting a tone of victory that's going to to fill the book of Revelation. And he's doing so by reminding us first and foremost of God's greatness. There in verses 4 and 5, encouraging us to live even in the midst of our circumstances, the hardships of life, living upon the fullness of God and his triune being, living in constant communion, constant fellowship with each person of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, because Each is essential to living a life unto him, even in this fallen world. And then we saw last week, he cultivates worship as a vital part of our warfare, something that oftentimes gets overlooked in the ongoing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And now we, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are seed of the woman in the battle that we feel internally in our own soul between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Worship is vital to our Success in the warfare. And that's where John writes to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this morning we're turning now to the final section of the first chapter of the book of Revelation. We're going to get there. I was telling somebody last weekend, it feels like the Lord may return before I complete this, maybe even chapter one of the book of Revelation. Uh, again, I intended to be well into chapter 2 by this point, but it's been necessary, I think, as we've gone through it to slow the pace a little bit. So you will probably never get another sermon card from me telling me for the next few months, here's how I'm going to preach. Uh, it's just, uh, I have a plan in my mind. It never goes right here. I don't need to bring you into that either. So, uh, But I, with God's help, we should get through with chapter 1, and if the Lord wants to come back while we're doing so, then... That you'll be okay. You'll sacrifice that. Well, as we continue on this morning, let's come to Revelation chapter 1, verses 8, or excuse me, verses 9 through 20, which brings us to, I, I'm trying to connect these pieces. I want you to see, I, this is a very practical letter. I want you to see how everything fits together. And, and here, it might be helpful to think of this kind of like a movie trailer right? If you go to a movie, before the movie you're there to see comes on, they bring on these movie trailers. And and what is a trailer intended to do? It just kind of introduces the movie. Within just a few seconds, you you identify a couple of main actors in the movie, and you realize, okay, okay, I like this actor or this actress. And and, and not long into it, you kind of discern, is this going to be a a drama? Is it going to be a comedy? 
Is it going to be a, a, an action-adventure thriller? You know, what, what is it going to be? You're able to identify certain things about it. And it's in t- intended to whet your appetite to make you want to nudge the person next to you and say, hey, when that comes out, I want to see that. I, I want that. I, I, I want to go see that. That's what a good movie trailer does. And that's what verses 9 through 20 are intended to do as well. It's introducing to us, again, the salutation, verses 4 through 8, are the gateway into where it's going. He's setting a tone, and now in verses 9 through 20, he's he's holding up the key player. He's holding up, here's the story. Here's the gist of it. And it's intended to flash before our eyes these dazzling scenes that are meant to entice us to want to keep reading. To, to want to keep pressing on to know more and more of this glorious Christ as he will be further revealed in the rest of the book of Revelation. So, let's turn our attention together to Revelation chapter 1. We'll read verses 9 through 20 together this morning. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our everlasting God, we come to you this morning so aware that this is a passage that exalts the majesty of Jesus Christ. And Father, we are here today because we desperately want and need to see Jesus. And our earnest prayer, Father, is that you would send the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes, to unstop dead ears, to give us receptive hearts, to make us pliable and moldable and responsive to your voice, which continues to speak to us today in your Holy Scripture. And we pray that in all this, Father, the glory and the praise 
might belong to Jesus. And that in all things, and in all areas of our lives, he might have supremacy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we have here in verses 9 through 20 is a portrait of the risen Christ. And it is, I think, without question, the most exalted and the most fascinating portrayal of Jesus Christ that we have anywhere in the Bible. Now, it's important to understand that this portrait of Jesus Christ is not intended to teach us what Jesus looks like. You've perhaps seen artists' renderings who have taken this passage we just read and tried to, to put it to, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, except it, it could be confusing that some people actually think that's what the risen Jesus in his glorified state looks like. That's not what John's intending to do. What this portrait is intended to do is to tell us about the nature and and about the the character of the risen Christ uh, in his glorified state. It's designed to give us a portrait of who he is spiritually, who he is morally, and, and what he's doing even now at the right hand of the Father on high. John has seen the risen Christ clothed in the attributes of deity. He's seen him in his glory and his majesty. And now what he's doing is he's calling forth everything he has seen, overwhelmed by the sight of it. I mean, we, we see that even upon the sight of it, he falls down as though dead. He's trying to use all of the vocabulary, all the poetic language in his mind to call to terms, how do I describe what I have just seen, what I have just witnessed about the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, which I've experienced in my vision? And the prayer is that what he experienced would be what we experienced this morning. That just as John was overwhelmed by the majesty of Christ in this vision, that to some degree or another, we too would be overwhelmed with awe and wonder over who Jesus is as we focus on the majesty of Christ. And that's the title of this morning's message the majesty of Christ. Commentators warn that as we look at this passage together, we be mindful that we don't become overly obsessed with all of the particulars of the description of Christ here. Uh, One commentator, and I think this is helpful language, says to be cautious that we don't unweave the rainbow. And what he means by that is this. When you're driving along and you see a rainbow off in the distance, I mean, we all acknowledge it. I pray as Christians it brings to mind God's faithfulness, God's covenant promises. But what we don't do when we see a rainbow is pull the car over, try to find it up in the sky, and try to separate the blue from the green from the yellow and and try to tear it apart, right? Uh, It is beautiful in its wholeness, in its entirety. Uh, we, We don't tear it apart to try to assess the individual colors there. Rather, you just sit back in awe and amazement at the beautiful revelation of God's love and God's faithfulness. And as we go through this description of Jesus's nature and character here, I'll be saying a few words about the various elements, but I'm trying to make sure that we're not unweaving the rainbow trying to to separate these things. Uh, We're not so much focused upon the details here as we are thinking about what John's intending to do here, the practical benefits of this. 
One of the things I've been trying to communicate early on in this sermon series, because it, it tends to be so foreign from our thinking, the book of Revelation is the most practical book in the entire New Testament. It, it really is. It's intended to be such, written to churches, to Christians in every age, in every circumstance, a message of triumph, a message of victory, a message of hope, a message of encouragement in Christ. And so we want to think about the practical benefit of this because there's a danger when we look at this passage. We read it, we go through the, the description here of Jesus, and, and we say here on a Sunday morning, man, that's awesome. That, that, that is awesome. And maybe even we listen to some of the descriptions of these things, and we think, man, that is, that's powerful. That is Christ. But then we leave here, and we're like, but how does that really help me? How does that really affect my life? I'm battling temptation. I'm battling lust. I'm battling greed. I'm, I'm battling lying or idolatry, or I'm, I'm facing some kind of affliction. I have a health problem. I'm battling sickness fear of death. I've got all these things going on, so how does this come to bear upon my life? How is this not just ivory tower theology that we acknowledge it, we worship it, we bend the knee before it, but, but it really, it doesn't meet me where I'm at. I hope to answer that question this morning. And we want to do it a little bit differently from the way the world tends to answer that question. How, how do you help me in my battle today with sin or with affliction or sickness or with fear of death? You know, all too commonly, the way that the church deals with those things, well, you know, when it comes to dealing with sin, we need more rules. Let's put more rules in place. Obviously, we don't have enough fences in our lives, so let's put some more rules in place, more commands, more imperatives. And you're not hearing me say that there's not wisdom to that. Okay, But I am saying that is not the centerpiece of it. Others may say, no, we just need to refrain, refrain from doing everything. We just need to, to, the way to battle sin and temptation is just cut yourself off from everything. Maybe even go so far as to cut yourself off from the world. That may sound ridiculous to you, but that has been argued. Others may say, no, 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 it's just good old-fashioned willpower. The way we battle these things, the way that we battle sin and temptation and illness and, 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 and all these kinds of things, fear of death, is just, you know, put your big boy boots on, get up, and just old-fashioned willpower. Buckle down. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Just do it. Right? The old Nike slogan. Well, they're all wrong. With all due respect. The primary catalyst for growth in the Christian life is ever-increasing conformity to Jesus Christ, which comes by beholding the glory of Christ. I'll say it again. I've learned this the hard way. And I'm like you. I've tried all these other things. And some of them work for a few days, maybe even a few weeks. But none of them sustain. None of them bring the lasting change. The primary catalyst for growth in the Christian life is ever-increasing conformity to Jesus, which comes from beholding his glory. Colin, I'm going to ask you to do something. Will you put 2 Corinthians 3.18 up here? It's a passage we've talked through before. I've quoted it to you before, and I'm sure you know it. But this morning, I want you to see it for yourself, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. 
and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same likeness, the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. What does Paul tell us there, back in that first slide there? We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. It's that way that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If you and I ever hope to change, and, you know, I think back to our, you know, I've been your pastor now for almost 14 years. Some of the things that various people here have shared with me, and I've shared with you, things that we struggle with, things that we're not content with, things that, and it's, man, it's, it's, it's an uphill climb to try to deal with those things. If we ever hope to change, if we ever hope to grow as a believer, it only comes, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, it only comes to the degree that you behold the glory of the Lord and treasure that glory above all else. Now, I want to make a connection between what Paul says here in Corinthians and what John sees here in Revelation chapter 1, combining these two truths, that we're transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord and the glory of the Lord, the majesty of Christ on display here in John's vision. Inside every Christian, I'm making a distinction here between a true believer and an unregenerate believer. I'm not talking, I'm not, not church attender, and the, I'm talking about a true believer and an unbeliever. In the inner core of every true Christian is an impulse to want to be more like Jesus. It's there. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of us on Wednesday nights are going through looking unto Jesus, Isaac Ambrose. We've been looking at the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant that God takes out that heart that has no impulse to love Jesus. And he puts in one that objectively has the impulse to love Jesus. All true believers have a desire to become more like Jesus because they love him. It's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, right? You what? You love him. And though you do not now see him, you love him with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Full, uh, inexpressible and filled with glory. Though we've not seen him, you love him. That just doesn't make any sense, does it? Except for that we've been given this love for him. And a desire, a longing to go, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Because I love him, because I see him, because I'm infatuated with him, I'm fascinated by him, I'm captivated by him, I'm mesmerized by him, he is, uh, there is none like him. I have a desire to be like him, to go from one degree of glory where I am now to another, closer to be more like him, conform to his likeness. And Paul tells us that when we're born again, the glory of God comes to abide in us through his Holy Spirit. And this new life emerges, what we call regeneration. This new life, it's not a moral life, it's not a religious life, it's not a church-going life, though those are subsidiaries, I would say, of the new birth, of the new life. None of those define what a new life is. New life is defined by love for Jesus, supreme love for Jesus, 
so much so that your love for your mother and father and children looks like hatred in comparison. That's what Jesus said. And out of this new life comes this love for Jesus and a momentum, a momentum throughout the course of our Christian lives to go from, I'm not content with my love for Jesus today, I want more. And in light of who he is, I want more. And I keep looking at him, I want to love him more. I want to be more like him, more like him, more like him. would stop there and say, if that doesn't resonate with you here, you have reason this morning to question whether your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is real. Because that is true Christianity. It is love for Jesus above all things. And Paul in 2 Corinthians is describing Christians and he's contrasting New covenant believers from old covenant believers. When he says there in, in 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face, he's intending for us to think, well, where have we seen a veiled face before, before the glory of the Lord? And that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, right? With Moses, Moses cries out to the living God, show me your glory. And God responds, you will die. Just one glimpse of my majesty unveiled, you drop dead instantaneously. Here's what I will do. I'll hide you in a cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by. I'll let you see anthropomorphic language, which simply means God is using human language about himself to help us better. He says, I'll let you see my backside as I'm going past. And so that's what happens. Moses comes down the mountain having seen the backside of the glory of God unveiled, and his face is radiating. His face is shining forth that it scares the people to death. They beg him, they plead with him, cover your face, veil your face. He's, he's radiating because he's been in the presence of Almighty God, but they're so terrified, they ask him to veil. And the only encounter that those people had with the glory of God was through a veiled face. And Paul was contrasting, but that's not how it is for us. That's not our contact with the glory of God, with the majesty of God. For those of us in the new covenant, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ because the fullness of God dwells in Him. And true transformation, true growth in the Christian life comes only as we behold that glory, as we see Him. Apart from that beholding, there is no becoming. And all other methods or strategies, even though they may have some nuggets of wisdom in them, if at the core of them it is not looking unto Jesus, a consistent daily beholding the glory of Jesus Christ, and I, I just, where do we find that? Here. You, you can turn to any page. You can read this, be reading the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis one, two, and three. And Jesus is the second Adam. You can go, you can read the story of that strange figure, Melchizedek. He's, he's, a, he's a Christ figure. You can read the story of David defeating Goliath. It is a story of Jesus Christ defeating the enemy that no one else could defeat, sin. You can go anywhere and you behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And all other methods or strategies for overcoming temptation or you know, battling just the Genesis 3 world in which we live, our fear of death. 
the change that we look for. Beholding is the way of becoming. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. It's not just a religious, hey, this would be a good idea. It is our very life. And it is transformative. Now in light of that, we come to Revelation chapter 1. A vision that John was given of the resurrected Christ. A vision that he has recorded for us. So that this morning, there is no potency of what John experienced that is lost for us this morning simply because we don't see it. The inspired word of God and the declaration of what John saw here is so powerful. What our experience this morning has the potential to be every bit as potent and powerful as what he experienced. And as we come together this morning, this revelation to John was intended to be a catalyst for change. For John, in his affliction on the island of Patmos, I'm not going to go back through, but verse 9 tells us he's on the island of Patmos. He's there on, in exile. All that his affliction, his hardship, the man's in his mid-90s. I don't think anyone in this room is of that age, and we know how we hurt <laughs> at our younger age than that. Could you imagine being in your mid-90s, being in exile, exile, working in a marble quarry? This vision was intended to be transformative for him, and as God is communicating it to him to translate, to communicate to the seven churches, which is, yes, for those seven churches, but seven being the symbolic number for perfection for all churches in all places in all time and all circumstances, is intended to be transformative and a catalyst for change in our lives as well. So as we see the glory of Christ, we become like him. And if you're sitting there this morning saying, you know, I'm looking at my life for the past several days, weeks, months, maybe years, and I just don't see much transformation going on, you may be tempted to blame all kinds of other things. But I would contend to you, it has everything to do with what you're beholding. Now, I can't answer that question for anyone but myself. But maybe it is we're spending too much time looking at other things and not becoming more like Jesus. And my responsibility to you this morning as your pastor is to hold up Christ week in and week out so that as we gather each Lord's Day, you can gaze upon him. So let's see how John experienced this majesty of Christ. Again, in verse 9, we're, we've already looked at it, so we're not going to rehearse it. He kind of gives some context that he's in exile on the island of Patmos. In verse 10, we learn that he's deeply immersed in the Spirit, so uh, his heart is open to, to what God is about to do to him. And, and, and I don't want us to read that and think, uh, you know, it, that's not an experience that we can replicate. Uh, something unique is happening here. Uh, God is opening John up for an experience that this, we can't manipulate, that we can't kind of formula, figure out what's happening here. There's just an openness to the Spirit that's going on right here. And it goes on in verse 11, Jesus tells him, I want you to write down the things that you're about to see. I'm about to show you something. I want you to write it down. Again, he's hearing a voice. I want you to write down what you see, and I want you to put it into a book. So for John, this was not intended to be an intensely personal thing. It wasn't intended to be private. It was revealed to John 
for the seven churches, Allah for every Christian in every age, in every situation, for you and I this morning, even as we gather here together as a church. And the primary way that you and I behold the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ is by looking at what John revealed here. Notice what happens in verse 12. John turns around to see. He's heard this voice giving him this instruction. He turns around to see who is this voice. And he's surprised by what he sees. He sees, verse 12 tells us, seven golden lampstands, and Christ is in the midst of them. Now, again, we've been talking about it over and over that uh, the imagery in Revelation is such that we really need to be familiar with the Old Testament. And a lot, a lot of times we, we have to do that grunt work of going back and what is he alluding to? Good news this morning, we don't have to do that. Because in verse 20, he identifies for us what these seven lampstands are. So, hey, thank you for doing this for us this morning. He sees seven lampstands. What are they? They are the seven churches, symbolic of the seven churches that he's writing to. Again, symbolic number seven. But notice where Jesus is, the voice in the midst of these seven churches. He's not just over them as sovereign Lord. I'm not saying he's not sovereign over them. I'm saying where's his position here? He's not over them. He's in the midst of them. He's present with them. He's pictured here as a, a heavenly high priest, just as a high priest in the Old Testament, who's in amongst his people, making sacrifice, mediating on behalf of his people. Here, Christ, the risen Christ is pictured as a heavenly priest who tends to his lampstands, who tends to his churches. And he does so by, by mediating God's word to them and, and, and serving on their behalf before God. He's encouraging them. He's, he's correcting them. In fact, we were, I would go so far as to say what we're going to see next week and in the subsequent weeks in chapters 2 and 3 where Christ speaks to his churches. It's just simply the overflow of what we see pictured here with Christ among these seven churches. He's there to encourage. He's there to command. He's there to correct. The point is he's not distant from his church. He's not away from them. He's with them. He's in the midst of them. And Covenant Life Church, because we are one of the seven churches. Can I, can I go ahead and use that language now? We, because seven, the number of perfection. Because we are the, one of the seven churches, whether you feel like it or not, whether, you know, maybe your heart has become hard or, or, or cynical or keeping Christ at arm's length, the fact of the matter is, as we gather this morning, Christ is here. Christ is among his church. He's with his people, constantly moving, constantly watching, constantly encouraging, constantly convicting, constantly correcting, speaking to us of his glory and of his greatness. And as we get into who this one is in the midst of his churches, we want to be careful not to unweave the rainbow. But John gives us a description of the one that he sees. Verse, verse 13 he sees one who's like a son of man. Now, son of man was one of Jesus' own, it was his favorite designation for himself in his earthly ministry. Of all the titles of Jesus and, uh, that were used when Jesus spoke of himself, son of man was the one that he used most often. And there's a danger, I think, when you hear the word son of man to think that he's talking about his humanity. He's not. Yes, Jesus was truly human, but that's not what son of man means. Usually we hear son of man, son of God. 
Son of God must speak to his deity. Son of man must speak to his humanity. No, actually, it's not that at all. Son of man was a designation that speaks to, actually, the deity of Jesus. And it's, it's one of those phrases, it's an Old Testament language. And we can go back to Daniel chapter 7, where we, we hear the use of this language, son of man. Daniel writes in 7, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Now, we've seen that language in, in Revelation. That's the Father. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the designation son of man is actually intended to speak of the majesty of Christ as a king, as a divine king, as authoritative, the one who's been given kingship, rule, reign, authority over all things. So as John is seeing this figure, Christ among his churches, he says, I see one like the son of man. He's, he's, Thinking Daniel 7 here. This is the imagery he has in mind. I see a ruler, a king, one who, who is an ordained ruler. I see the mighty king among his churches. He goes on. Verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. It evokes images of the Old Testament high priest with their apparel. And those Old Testament priests who would carry in the blood of bulls and goats, both for his own sin and for the sins of his people, but which really could never wipe away their sins at all, here we have the true high priest, right? Hebrews, the true high priest, that every one of those high priests figured. Again, when you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading the whole high priest, the individuals, it's foreshadowing the coming of Christ. And when John sees him clothed in this Old Testament priestly gear, he's seeing the, the high priest who did not offer up the blood, blood of bulls and goats, he offered up his own blood. As we saw in verse 5, which frees us from our sins. He goes on to say about this one that he saw, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. This doesn't mean that Jesus is aging, it doesn't mean he's old, doesn't mean he's decrepit, doesn't mean that, well, in the pictures I see of Jesus now, he has brown hair or maybe dark hair, and, and it's, it's grayed over the course of time. Not at all. It's metaphoric language here. The idea here is, throughout the Bible, white hair speaks of maturity, it speaks of dignity, it speaks of renown, it speaks of wisdom. Usually with long life comes wisdom. And he's simply saying that Christ has dignity. Christ has renown. Christ has knowledge. Christ has wisdom. The wisdom of one who's typically lived a long life. Well, this one who is outside of time and space, he is all wise. His eyes were like a flame of fire, verse 14 ends. The idea here is he has the power to see all things. The eyes of flame of fire. He has the power to bring hidden things to light, 
to warm and to search all hearts at a glance. And his, his searching of our hearts is it's filled with both warmth but also terror that he looks upon us as he's in our midst. He is the king. He is all wise. And even as he's here this morning in our midst, he looks at me and he looks at you with eyes of fire. And he knows it all. All that we have held in darkness that we, we keep hidden from all others. He sees. Those things that maybe even this week we thought we did when no one else was around. Right now, Christ in our midst, before him, it's as bright as the noonday sun. His eyes penetrate. He knows all. He doesn't sleep. His eyes don't weaken over time. They burn ablaze with power and energy and insight. Verse 15, his feet were like furnished bronze. Again, Daniel. Daniel's vision in chapter 2, you remember he saw a vision, a great statue. And do you remember what the feet of that statue was, was made of? It was clay. Feet of clay and iron. And what did that statue represent? It represented all the kingdoms of the world, the mighty empires of the world, but it was built on feet of clay and iron. And the idea being it can't sustain. It can't hold the weight. It can't bear the weight of the mighty empires and all that they're trying to achieve and all that they're trying to do. All the kingdoms of the world there in that vision of Daniel 2 were being told they're built with feet of clay, they're going to crumble. For a time, it may feel like they're standing tall. And we can go all throughout church history, all throughout human history, and we can see this, that at various times, different nations, different empires stood tall, but eventually they come crumbling down. But in contrast to that, Jesus is, is a king with feet of burnished bronze. His kingdom is one that will not crumble. That's what Daniel said in chapter 7. Remember the Son of Man language? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What a foolish thing to put our trust in man. And I'm not trying to get political here. But to put our, our trust in uh, President Trump or President Obama or this party, the, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or this or that, I would hope we all realize that by now. When we turn on the radio or turn on the television, a bomb has gone off somewhere. And we see threats of violence between this nation and this nation and our own nation. It's all built on feet of clay. We belong to a kingdom, belong to a king whose feet are like burnished bronze. And wherever King Jesus plants his feet, in the midst of his churches, here this morning with us, there he stands unshakable, immovable, unbreakable. He rules his kingdom no matter what we're going through. 
we gathered here together in this place with Christ in our midst, and we may have brought in all kinds of different circumstances, afflictions, realities that we've been battling all week long. And we've been tempted to believe, man, I don't know if Christ is enough. Well, here Christ gathers with us with feet of burnished bronze. Verse 15, his voice was like the roar of many waters. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I'm like you. I, I, you. Maybe you've been to Niagara Falls and, and you've sat at the base of, of, of a, that waterfall or some other waterfall and you hear the water coming. And I, I think back and just my few experiences of being around a waterfall, it's loud, right? And, and if you're talking to somebody, it's, it's crazy. You have to yell to get over the roar of that. And, and I'm guessing it speaks to the authority of Christ. It's speaking to the, the power of Christ. It's speaking to, to, to the drama that uh, just his voice captures our attention. Uh, I don't know, but it's majestic. <laughs> In his right hand, he, stelled, he held seven stars. And again, we know what that is because in verse 20, we're told it refers to the angels. Christ in our midst, all of the glory and majesty on display holds in his hand even the angels here this morning. You know, we live in a day where angels get a lot of credit. You go to Lifeway, you go to wherever, angels everywhere, you know. and They're worthy of respect. But my goodness, they are under the sovereign control of Christ. They're in his hand. The myriads and myriads of angels who do his bidding and will do his bidding all throughout the book of Revelation. When they unleash the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, they're in the palm of Jesus Christ doing as he commands. Verse 16 again, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It speaks of the word of God, the spoken word. Two-edged because it brings both encouragement, it brings healing, but it also brings judgment upon those who disbelieve. And it's just a subtle reminder, this voice of the Lord, this two-edged sword, the voice of Him, how do we hear it? Uh, it's not audible. How do we hear the voice of the Lord? It's right here, right? This is where He speaks. And that's actually part of, the, I think, the the beauty of apocalyptic language. Because apocalyptic imagery we see in the book of Revelation, Revelation takes that which just in our humanity we hear, and you probably know this, I know it, whether it be me preaching or whether it be me hearing, people will tell us something that to them is so important and I hear it and I'm just like, dude, move on, keep going. But in their mind it's like, but this is important, you're not listening, you've got to hear this. Apocalyptic, we can do the same thing with scripture, right? In our daily quiet time, I don't mean any disrespect to the Word of God, but we kind of get caught up in a rut. We kind of move the pages on. Apocalyptic language here this morning reminds us, no, no, no. Every time we open this, whatever your habit is, however you, morning, afternoon, night, whatever, it's a two-edged sword. This is the voice of the living God that you're opening. The power to heal, the power to mold, the power to judge, the power to convict. It is a relentless weapon in the hand of Almighty God that has the power to absolutely carve us up when needed or to build us up to Jesus Christ to help us to see Him. 
and by this sword, right? What does the, 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 the soldier use to, to conquer? The sword. It's in our time of affliction and hardship that we most need this two-edged sword because it's by the sword, by the voice of the living God, that we conquer, that we're transformed, that we become more like Jesus. And lastly, in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. There's a radiance, there's a beauty to the face of Jesus that he saw. Again, this is not a portrait of Jesus. This is apocalyptic imagery. But looking at Jesus was like, John says, like trying to look at the noonday sun directly. No cloud, no sunglasses, nothing to filter it, just trying to sun blazing fire in the sky, you putting your eyeballs on it and not taking it off. Ever tried to do that? It burns your eyes. You can't do it but more than a split second. And John is saying, so glorious is the radiance, the countenance of Christ that we're told in Revelation 21 and 22, there's not even a need for a son anymore. There's no need for it because the radiance of Christ will be such. No, no sun, no electricity, no lamps, no flashlights. The radiance of Christ will flood the new heaven and the new earth. He's dazzling in his exalted glory. Only when we hear what John saw and God has given us eyes to see do we understand what happened here in verse 17. And when I saw him, I feel at his feet as though dead. This was not a theology lesson for John. This was not a, well, that's cool. You know, I've always wondered about these things. This was... Christ is in my midst, the fullness of who he is. In all of these descriptions, and his circuits overload, and he shuts down, knowing he's in the presence of Almighty Christ. Beloved, John has already told us Christ is in the midst of his churches means he's here with us this morning. Why are we not having the same response? Why are we not responding the same way? Why do we not see Christ? It's not that we can't understand the imagery. It's not that we look at these words and we can't process it. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. Notice the mercy of Christ, which is every bit a part of his majesty. As John falls down as though dead, verse 17 says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. You know, something that struck me the past several weeks and reading through this and trying to prepare these. Is not the author of the book of Revelation the same John who spent three years with Jesus? Is this not the same John and the same Jesus who were in the upper room together in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17? Is this not the same John and the same Jesus who even after the resurrection 
John closes his gospel by saying, as they shared a meal, he rested his head on the chest of the resurrected Jesus. And the answer is, it is the same John. And it is the same Jesus. So what is going on here? The idea here is previously, Jesus was in his state of humiliation. Subject to being slain, nailed on a cross, put in a grave. But now, now it's the resurrected and glorified Christ. Same Jesus. But now in his unveiled, majestic, glorified state. So John, when he sees, doesn't flee in terror. He falls down at his Savior's feet. The one that he's previously known. The one that he spent many years with. He falls down at his feet. And again, I commend, if we're not doing the same thing, we might be reading the passage, and you might be listening to me talk. But we're not right here seeing or hearing what John is communicating. And Christ reaches out and touches him and says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He simply says to John. In exile. On the island of Patmos. With all of his affliction. With all of his hardship. Mid 90's. Facing death. I have the power over all things. And covenant life church. This is our risen Savior. And our seeing Christ this morning through John's vision is as good as us being there in this occasion. Christ is our, in our midst in all of his majestic glory. And he's here to you and I, not only Island of Patmos, but here in Olive Branch or in Memphis. And with all that you're going through, your hardships, your afflictions, your struggle with sin, the things that you're guilty of this week that you thought nobody knew. He's here with eyes of flames of fire. With feet of burnished bronze. And we fall down before him. And he says, by grace, by kindness, by mercy, fear not. I know you feel defeated and discouraged. I have the power over all things. In your daily struggle with temptation, with lust, with greed, with lying, with idolatry, in your physical sickness that you just, it just doesn't go away, in the fear of death. Now, we, we just, we want, we don't want it anymore. We want to grow from that. It's with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord that were transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's what was happening in the first century. In the first century, you have Emperor Nero throwing Christians to the lions, wrapping them in animal skins, and throwing them out to the lions to be eaten, putting them in a log and sawing them in two. By the year 90 AD, you have the Emperor Domitian coming in, and, and if you don't call Domitian Lord and Savior, he, he kills you or tortures you or send you to the island of Patmos. 
All you had to do in that day, just identify Domitian as Lord and Savior and King, and you live. But the Christians of these churches couldn't do that because their hearts had already been conquered by another king. Christ had claimed exclusive right to that title in their hearts. And so their confession, even in the face of death, was Jesus is Lord. You can slay me, but I will not turn from submitting to his lordship over my life. That's courage. That's strength. That's growth. How did they get there? By beholding Jesus. That's what this revelation is about. Beholding Jesus. And the same truth that chased away John's fear, fear not, I have defeated all these things, is the same thing that will drive away our fears and our temptations and our struggles with sin. Knowing Jesus this way, in his majesty, in his wisdom, in his eyes of fire, in his high priestly gear, making atonement for our sins, in his feet burnished bronze, that even when the world around us is crumbling, and it feels like our own lives, our families are crumbling, Christ does not. And that he is in our midst, and he says, fear not to us by grace. Now he says to John, I have the keys to death and to Hades. I have the keys over the things that are most fearful. I'm I'm an authority over everything else as well. I have the keys over it all. So neither Nero nor Domitian nor Islamic terrorists nor North Korea nor any of the unknown things we still don't know about or, or, or we'll only find about in the years to come. None of these things have dominion over me. Fear not. He says to his seven churches in the midst of all that you're going through. Because look at who I am. Look at what I've done. And all that you're going through. I have the keys to them all. And you may not understand it right now. But I'm giving you, I'm dangling the keys here. This is the movie trailer. Keep reading, keep watching. Because let me unfold it, give you a little picture, and you see, I win. And through me, you win. Cling to me. Keep looking to me. The arm that's keeping me at arm's length, break it. Pray for grace. John paints for us this full portrait of Christ. Majestic, transcendent, exalted, reigning, bow the knee. But he's also merciful and tender. Abounding in covenant love. Full of mercy. Stooping down to us saying, I'm with you. Fear not. I hold the keys to everything. Even to death and to Hades. And I'm here with you. Where are we looking? He's with us.